So with your permission, or maybe I'll do it without your permission, I want to begin our subject with a rather playful analogy. And I, I hope it doesn't offend but and I'm really hoping for some audience participation. Can we do that? Come, let us reason together. All right, is that okay? All right. So here, here's the analogy. If the Apostle Paul would have been able to take a selfie toward the end of his ministry, what would we see in the picture? What would he look like? What would appear in the background? Since selfies have become a way to mark our significance, to be seen has become more important than to see. One wonders what a Pauline version of an apostolic selfie would reveal. So tell me, what would he include in his selfie? Any ideas? This is the audience participation part. Unless you're too offended by such a pedestrian question, and then we'll just move on with more highbrow conversation here. Huh? He's going to take a picture of him? Is that, oh. He would take a picture of Gentiles. <laughs> he just learned about Gentiles? <laughs> yeah, so and did, did you discover you're a Gentile, perhaps? Yeah. And now you're celebrating the good news of Paul's gospel. That you're included in the blessings God made to Abraham. Yeah, very good. All right, so he would, he would grab a bunch of Gentiles, say, hey, get it, squeeze in here real quick, and let's take a picture. Good. His co-workers. His co-workers. Anyone in particular thinking of Luke? Uh, maybe a selfie would have been a good way to write a silent Wow. <laughs> get the women patronesses in here, and let's, let's sort this out with a picture. Very good. Yes, sir. Yeah. Boy, I like that. He found a joy, didn't he? In places that are very dark that I find a hard time finding joy in. I really admire him for that. So this is what we're trying to answer. Basically, we're trying to answer this question, why did Paul matter? And I'm putting forward the suggestion this morning that our answer to such a question would be different from Paul's. In other words, if we were to go back in time, say just before Paul was executed, and were to ask him, as you look back over the years of your ministry, what is the legacy you leave behind? What do you consider to be your greatest work, that which will endure forever? I think Paul would say, the churches I started, presenting the Gentiles, the obedience of the Gentiles to Christ on the last day, that will be my greatest honor. In fact, he said as much to the Thessalonians, didn't he? For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and joy. But that's not what we think. Rather, we would say, perhaps even unanimously, that Paul's greatest achievement, the memorial to his legacy, the proof that Paul matters, happens to be the letters he wrote, because we consider them scripture. And I think Paul would be completely astonished by that. 
that the letters he wrote would one day become part of our scripture, far more important to us than the churches he started, especially since it could be said that most, if not all of them, died out. That, I think, would really bother our beloved apostle. I can't even imagine him arguing against such a notion. No, no, that can't be right. The church, the body of Christ, is my letter, written on my heart, known and read by all people. More than that, my converts are a letter of Christ, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. They are my work in the Lord, the seal of my apostleship. Words on paper, they'll fade and crumble away. The word of God written on fleshy hearts. That is the confidence we have in Christ, a glory that never fades. Now, of course, those of you familiar with the letters of Paul recognize the words that I've put in his mouth. They are a mashup of several lines from his letters to the Corinthians, which is a rather ironical situation since the Corinthians considered Paul's letter writing evidence of his weakness as an apostle. Well, we consider the letters of Paul to be the obvious sign of his legacy, the lasting memorial to his apostleship. His own converts in Corinth held their apostle in contempt because of them. Since Paul seemed to be unable to deal with his converts face to face, he relied upon letters to do the hard work of straightening out the problems in the house churches. In fact, it could be said, especially in light of the painful visit Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, that Paul's presence made things worse, not better. Which is why he sent letters ahead of his intended visits to Corinth, which, by the way, was atypical for him. He would usually send letters once he left the place. But these letters he sent that basically functioned to the Corinthians as I call epistolary sorties, a way of dropping rhetorical bombs on the church to soften up his adversaries before he arrived and a strategy that seemed to backfire. Quote, this is from 2 Corinthians 10. Our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Boy, do you hear the sarcasm dripping off his voice? For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Of course, we hear the sarcastic tone in Paul's voice. Obviously, the apostles' letters didn't terrify the Corinthians. Paul had to write several to them to make him make his converts believe, even recognizing that his letters might not be enough to get the job done, having to threaten them like a father. Quote, shall I come to you with a rod or with love, he says. Besides, they were the kind of church that sent their own letter to him. Letters didn't scare the Corinthians. Rather, their beef with Paul was that the measure of the man did not match the power of his written word. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. To the Corinthians, Paul's letters were an attempt to compensate for his weakness. But to us, they represent his strength as an apostle. And I find that very ironic. So, I'd like to use what Paul's opponents said about him as an entry point into exploring the apostle's rather novel idea that 
Because of Christ, we should learn to boast in our weaknesses rather than our strengths. It's one thing to embrace weakness as a way of realizing the resurrection power of the cross. It's quite something else to boast about our weaknesses, to boast about them, especially when we consider the social dynamics of boasting in Paul's world and ours. Boasting was a social necessity in a male-dominated world that prized honor above everything else. The social worth of you and your community was what mattered most. And so whenever an honorable member of the group made their claim, hey, I'm really important and here's why, it was up to the group to confirm the same. Yes, it's true, he's that important. Of course, what was considered honorable, noble, wise, profitable was a culturally informed social good, reflective of the worth of the community as much as the individual. For if a person claimed too much, no, he's not that important, or the wrong thing, why are you boasting about that? Then it was up to the group to put him in his place, to shame him in submission. The honor of the many exceeded the needs of the individual, even the honorable head of the group. So, imagine the confusion among the Corinthians when they fingered Paul's weaknesses. You should be ashamed. And the apostle shot back with, on the contrary, I boast in my weakness, and you should too. A rather subversive tactic when you think about it. And not only a subversive tactic, it would only work if confirmed by the group. But before we consider why Paul made such a risky move, he had his gospel reasons. Let's examine the charges against him, that is, the weaknesses of Paul the Apostle according to the Corinthians. So I want to use their uh, criticism of him, that he quotes, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. We'll start with the last, that his speech was contemptible, work our way towards the first, a derogatory remark about his letters. First... His speech was contemptible. Paul freely admitted he was a lousy speaker, unskilled in speech, an amateur. Quote, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. That's 1 Corinthians 2. Now, according to the handbooks on rhetoric, there were two important skills that were necessary to delivering a persuasive speech, structure and delivery. And as we might expect, the philosophers put much more weight on the former than the latter, for they believed a well-conceived argument should carry the day on substance alone. They were reticent to admit that delivery mattered, pleasant voice, commanding presence, rhythm of speech, clear enunciation, proper emotion for the occasion. Rather, they believe the driving force of persuasion depend upon the substance of the argument. Speaking dismissively about the necessity of effective delivery several centuries before Paul, Aristotle wrote, quote, The subject of expression, however, has some small necessary place in all teaching. For to speak in one way rather than the other does not make some difference in regard to clarity Though not a great difference, but all these things are forms of outward show and intended to affect the audience. And I love this line. As a result, 
nobody teaches geometry this way. <laughs> Can you imagine? A squared plus B squared <laughs> equals. I mean, I love that. Nobody teaches geometry this way. <clears throat> See, theologians are supposed to be boring. <clears throat> <clears throat> A few centuries later, the sophist arrived on the scene, setting up shop in places like Corinth, teaching their students the explosive power of style over substance. How things were said in Paul's day had become much more important than what was said. Technique of delivery trumped the art of rhetoric. The masses could be swayed with the simplest arguments delivered in dramatic fashion, and the philosophers despised it. Consequently, speech as theater had become very popular in urban life in Paul's day, a difficult situation for a preacher of the gospel whose speech was contemptible. No wonder Paul compared himself to Moses, echoing the prophet's words when he expressed the same frustration. Who is adequate for these things? We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That's 2 Corinthians 2. And so Paul, the philosopher, a lover of God's wisdom, had the same beef with sophistry only on gospel terms. Charismatic substance shouldn't depend upon theatrical oratory. Indeed, it can't. If it does, it ceases to be the gospel, the work of the Spirit. Paul had a firm conviction about this. You see it several places. Second criticism. His personal presence is unimpressive. Or more literally, he wrote, the parousia, or what they say, the parousia of the body is weak. For a guy who placed great emphasis on the parousia of the Messiah... Even talking about himself in the same terms, promising the Philippians of his imminent apostolic parousia in Philippians 1, this must have been hard to take. The parousia was supposed to be an undeniable demonstration of power and glory of God. And yet, Paul knew he was a mess of a man. Hard to look at. A revelation of weakness and shame. He knew he made a lousy first impression which is why he marveled over the times his converts welcomed him with honorable gifts of hospitality. They should have been repulsed by his appearance. He talks about this in Galatians 4. He talks about this in Corinthians several places. He calls himself a cracked pot, a profaned vessel designated for common use, which is a rather astonishing situation since he claimed to carry within himself the very glory of God. Of course, outward appearances can be deceiving, Paul emphasized that more than once. But conventional wisdom among the Romans, as well as the Jews, helped guide the people to distinguish between those who are cursed by God and those who are blessed. Guilt by association explained the collateral damage of divine punishment. And so the wise would shun the sick, the diseased, the impoverished, the afflicted, since they were cursed by God. And only a fool would think otherwise, perhaps inviting the very wrath of God which is why what Paul sounded like when he defended his trials, his difficulties, his afflictions and weaknesses, he defended them as evidence of God's favor. Now, we mistake the litany of bad times that Paul reported to the Corinthians as the apostles' reticent boast. 
We read the list in 2 Corinthians 11. You know the list, what he talks about, all the things he endured. What, what did he, imprisonment, right? Stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. Talks about insomnia, being malnourished. Talks about threadbare clothing. And we read that list and we think, wow, what a great man. Committed to the gospel at all costs. But that's not what the Corinthians heard. Instead, to them, Paul sounded like a madman, boasting in his failures, the undeniable evidence of God's disfavor. For if God were on Paul's side, why would the Lord make his life so hard? Can I get a witness to that? His body was the very incarnation of hard times. But to Paul, his appearance should have been reason to boast because he, quote, bore on his body the stigmata of Jesus. That's from Galatians. His beaten down, damaged, scarred, unsightly body was the result of a crucified life. Something he hoped his converts would embrace as the only way to live. Indeed, he was convinced his bodily appearance preached the gospel the cross of Jesus to the Galatians. And I take this quote, he's referring to himself, I think, in Galatians 3.1, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just a few verses before that, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. His flesh, his body, was tattooed by the cross the marks of the gospel life in his flesh. And even though there was a time when his Galatian converts recognized the cruciform gospel incarnated, many of them began to question what they saw. Quote, but you know that it was due to the weakness in my flesh that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my flesh tested you, you did not despise or loathe me. You received me as a messenger of God. As Christ Jesus himself What happened to your blessing? So also the Corinthians, Paul writes, we are morons because of Christ. You are prudent in Christ. I love this, by the way. When Paul gets sarcastic, I just love it. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To this hour, we are hungry and thirsty and destitute and abused and homeless. We've become the scum of the world. What has scraped off the bottom of the barrel. That Paul wanted his converts to imitate this way, joining him and bearing the cross of Jesus' humiliation, sounded ludicrous to the Corinthians. They preferred to reign as kings, realizing messianic glory without sharing in messianic suffering. Wouldn't we rather have a gospel like that? But Paul replied to that sarcastically. I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. Finally, his letters are weighty and strong, but this is the nub of the matter. In writing, Paul sounded like a heavyweight, someone with great authority. The fact that his letters demonstrated some rhetorical skill, the level of which is debated by scholars, seemed at cross purposes with his preaching. Evidently, the apostle of the Gentiles refused to use sophistry when he preached the gospel in Corinth. 
even though it was apparent to the Corinthians that he knew how to weave an argument that was written with some rhetorical force. Perhaps that's what the Corinthians were criticizing when they said his letters, his letters were weighty and strong. Paul the author did not match Paul the speaker. Quote, this is my words, sure, he can write a mean letter, they would admit, but he can't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. Therefore, the Corinthians came to resent the rhetorical force of Paul's writings. To their way of thinking, since Paul was such a weak man in person, it was rather a cowardly move on his part to hit them over the head with such strong words when he wasn't around to defend what he wrote. He couldn't take care of things in person. Why should they listen to him in absentia? Of course, we can think of several reasons why Paul didn't rely upon sophistry when he preached nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. No amount of rhetorical skill can make the cross sound good to a bunch of Roman colonists. Surely they knew that. But there may have been another reason why the Corinthians were offended by the weight of Paul's letters, another indication of his weakness as an apostle. I think it was the size of the letters that bothered them. Remember, during his trip, Paul was collecting a relief offering for the church in Jerusalem. He had expressed some doubts in his lengthy letter as to whether the Corinthians were prepared, questioning if they had collected enough money. His strategy genius is even saying that the Macedonians had given so much out of their poverty. Oh, Paul would be so ashamed if the Corinthians offered a mere pittance compared to the bountiful gift of these people who are living nearly in poverty. Some think he would have been a great TV evangelist, Paul. Imagine how these things would have hit the Corinthians as they read from this monster letter that must have cost at least $1,000 and probably more. As a matter of fact, we estimate, not taking into account the lost Corinthian letters, that Paul's Corinthian correspondence probably set the apostle back about four to $5,000. And all this was done as he's headed for Corinth. Was it all really that necessary? Spending all that money crafting such lengthy letters when Paul would be there within a few months, perhaps? Maybe a year. Of course, since the apostle wasn't strong enough, the Corinthian way of thinking, to take care of things in person, a weak speaker would have to rely upon countermeasures to compensate for his inadequacies. Bruce Winter in his book, Philo Paul Among the Sophists, noted that, quote, according to Plutarch, Desmothenes hired an actor to help him with his delivery. You ever think about doing that? Dionysius explains why Isocrates refrained from public speaking. He lacked, quote, the first and most important quality of a public speaker, which is the exhibition of self-confidence and a strong voice. And I add, it makes one wonder about the quality of Paul's voice. Could you imagine if he had a high and squeaky voice? Was there a halting rhythm to his cadence, perhaps exhibiting some kind of disfluency like Moses? Or was there an unusual quality to his delivery that we would recognize immediately as someone who has dealing with a permanent effect of head trauma? One of the after effects of brain damage is verbosity. People don't know when to shut up if they've been in a real bad automobile accident. Did Paul rattle on and on and on and on when he preached the gospel? I wish we could know these things. 
But that's just pure speculation to ask these kinds of questions. But I imagine in my, with my mind's eye, the opponents of Paul in Corinth holding these big scrolls in their hands, shaking their heads and muttering sarcastically about the relief offering. He thinks we're not prepared to give much money? Boy, these letters sure weigh a lot. What does a standard one-page letter cost these days anyway? Besides, didn't he say somewhere in there that writing was unnecessary? Someone grabs two Corinthian scrolls and tries to find it. It takes a long time to get there. Yes, here it is. For it is superfluous for me to write you about this ministry to the saints. But you did it anyway, didn't you, Paul? That's our apostle. Says one thing, does something else. In light of the Corinthians' critique, the weaknesses of Paul were evident. He was inconsistent. He was inefficient. And therefore, to their way of thinking, he was ineffective. That made Paul the least of the apostles, something he admitted to in 1 Corinthians, but then took back in 2 Corinthians. See? Maybe the Corinthians were right. Paul was inconsistent at times, even when it came to important issues like keeping the law. To those who are under the law, what does he say to the Corinthians? I live as under the law, though myself not being under the law. To those without the law, how does he live? As without the law, though not being without the law of God. Think of other inconsistencies, the fodder of scholarly wars over Paul. His views about women, silent or not. About marriage, for or against. About circumcision, one minute you're severed from Christ, the next minute, the very next verse, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Of course, as friends of the apostle, We try to reconcile these apparent contradictions. We smooth out the rough edges of his argument. These things can be explained. But others, especially his opponents then and now, are not so willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. These battles over the significance of Paul will continue to this day and beyond. And even though I think they are worthy contests, scholars sorting out what St. Paul really said, for those of us in church ministry... I'd like to propose another approach that's just as important. Rather than try to always explain him or even rehabilitate him according to our standards, perhaps it's time we should imitate Paul and learn to boast in weakness too, his as well as ours. To be sure, there were certain weaknesses that Paul boasted in and other shortcomings he tried to defend. For example, Paul had no problem boasting in his weak appearance, and as we've already noted, he wasn't resident at all to admit he was unskilled in speech. But he didn't like hearing that he was an inconsistent apostle, saying yes one minute, then no the next. Defending his constantly changing itinerary, first he's coming to the Corinthians by way of the Macedonia. Then he decided to make a double visit, coming to Corinth, then to Macedonia, then back to Corinth. Then after the painful visit, he reverted back to his original plan, and Paul asked us, Converts, was I vacillating when I changed my plans that with me there should be yes, yes and no, and no all at the same time? He expected a negative response. He bristled at being accused of not acting consistently like an apostle. Paul had his reasons for giving up apostolic privileges, and the Corinthians needed to learn from that in 1 Corinthians 9. He wouldn't dare complain about the sacrifices he made, not deriving his living from the gospel. He says that would make my boast an empty one. In fact, he said he'd rather die than boast in vain. For the one thing Paul knew for certain was that boasting in the sufferings of Christ was never vanity. 
to preach the gospel, you had to be a fellow partaker of it. And since that is the case, then you might as well boast in the cross of Christ. Not just something done for us, but to us and through us. Quote, may it be that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Of all the statements he makes about the cross, that's the one that rests my imagination the most. May I boast in the cross of Jesus, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Indeed, Paul found contentment in boasting in weakness, for to him it revealed the cross of Jesus. And therefore, I wonder if we were to imitate him, what would it look like if we boasted in our weakness today? How would it be received? Would people respond just like the Corinthians, contemptuous of our shortcomings? Or would they eventually come around, recognizing our weakness as the power of Christ's cross in us? But before we answer that question, let's consider what Paul expected from his converts, how the Corinthians should have responded to the cross of Jesus and their apostle. First, He expected them to confirm his claim by joining him and boasting in his weakness. When he wrote, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Paul expected the Corinthians to shout a hearty, amen. Isn't that truth? Just look at Paul. A foolish, weak, base, despised man whom God used to bring us the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. If they had joined him in boasting in his weakness, then according to Paul, they would have been boasting in the Lord. I love that. Second, Paul expected his converts to look at the world through resurrection eyes, as I call it. Because he says, quote, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised, but we have the mind of Christ. That's why he wasn't threatened when his converts were ashamed of him. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he will be appraised by no man. So when the Corinthians judged Paul according to his appearances, it meant nothing to him. He knew he was carrying in his body the dying of Jesus, as he calls it calls it. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. And by the way, this is becoming more real to me with every year of my life. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. To outsiders, the cross looks like death, perishing. To those of us who look upon the world with resurrection eyes, with resurrection eyes, the cross looks like life. It deconstructs the world and then reconstructs it reconfigures it out a brand new idea through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Therefore, the things that the world prizes, sounding good, looking good, don't matter to us. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And while we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal Things which are not seen are eternal. Finally, Paul expected his converts to boast in him as a weak apostle because that's just the way the Lord set up the church. Using the analogy of a human body to emphasize the diversified unity of the body of Christ, Paul wrote, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. This is a familiar text, isn't it? To you. 
Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think are dishonorable, we are to give them more honor. And our disreputable members end up getting respect. In other words, it's the weak members of the body that deserve the most honor because they reveal what the church needs the most. The cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul expected the Corinthians to join their apostle and boast in his weakness. (laughs) Rather than holding him in contempt, because they should have recognized that they needed him to learn how to embrace the cross. The necessity of sacrifice. For without him, there would have been no church in Corinth. A group of people who could have boasted in the fact that they were not many wise, not many mighty, not many honorable. Needing every member, especially Paul, to reveal the cross of Christ to the world. And that's where I want to begin to transition from Paul's world to ours, to take his advice seriously for today, to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Because much like the Corinthians, we tend to value ourselves and one another based on appearances, according to what the world deems effective and significant to be seen rather than to see. So, why don't we see more of us today imitating Paul and boasting in our weakness? I wonder if it's because most of us consider boasting in weakness as a foolish act of professional suicide. Can you imagine a preacher admitting he's a lousy speaker? And the church going, isn't that the truth? (laughs) Or a minister admitting her appearance doesn't matter? And the church celebrating these so-called weaknesses because it proves the work of the Spirit? Takes a big God to work a lump of clay like you. Or consider the presumption within our culture that efficiency determines effectiveness. And notice how all of the ministries that run smoothly, perhaps even producing desired outcomes, are held up as exemplary models of success, especially at these so-called church growth conferences. But here's the question. If the cross isn't evident, or as Paul put it, if these things are done without love, then what are we truly celebrating? If all we do is highlight our strength and success then how will anyone know the heart of the gospel in our lives? Indeed, as certain churches and even Texas have proven, you can have a very successful ministry without the cross. Finally, what if we were to boast in the weak members of our churches? And who would that be, by the way? Can I have some audience participation? Paul was a weak member of his church. Who are the weak members of our churches? And what if we were to boast in them? Addicts? The mentally ill? Those with special needs? Rather than segregate them into help groups, sequestered from the rest of the body of Christ, why can't we as the church be entrusted with their weaknesses, their afflictions? Their shortcomings, according to our culture. Rather than encouraging them to find support groups of like kind, why can't the entire body of Christ be their support group? It really, really bothers me. Indeed, since Paul affirmed the social realities of our identity in Christ, that we need each other to be the whole body, and maybe it's time we learn how to bestow, bestow more honor on our unseemly members. That's a very hard thing to do, perhaps because we don't like admitting that we have unseemly members. 
but we do. For if you knew my weaknesses, that which is hidden from your eyes, you would assign me to the unseemly group. This is what we forget. No Christian can be all that Christ is to the world. Only together do we reveal the body of Christ, community, in all of our strengths and weaknesses. I can't follow Jesus by myself. Indeed, the only way I can become a Christian is to offer myself strengths and especially weaknesses to the church in order that the good news of Jesus Christ, the whole gospel, might be revealed to the whole world. Besides, if we were to boast in our weaknesses, we might end up celebrating the least of these, discovering someone among us as weak as the Apostle Paul. So to return to the question, if Paul were to have taken a selfie, what would be in the picture? Given what the Corinthians thought of him and the fact that Paul preferred to boast in weakness, I think he would have taken a picture of himself in prison holding one of these big, fat Corinthian copies with a raised eyebrow and a slight grin on his face. Let me end by giving a little advice in light of Paul's example. There will come a time in your ministry when your weaknesses will become evident to you and to others. Your opponents, and you will have opponents in the church, will try to use them against you as proof of your ineffective ministry in the body. At that moment, you'll probably wonder whether you should deny them, hide them, or defend them. Let me suggest one more option. It may be the perfect time to boast about them. Perhaps even saying something like, yes, I'm well aware of my weakness. It reminds me how much I need the cross of Jesus in my life. To quote another servant of the Lord, who was also weak, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This is my prayer for all of us, that the power of Christ's cross may dwell in us completely. That would be something to boast about. Thank you.